This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Welcome to The Beauty of Horror, a podcast dedicated to exploring the unsettling beauty found within our favorite genre. Each episode, I will sit down with a different guest to discuss a horror film they find particularly beautiful and why. I'm your host, Chandler Bullock, and today's guest is a film scholar and writer for publications here in the Netherlands, including Schokent News and Cine.nl. .nl, if you are outside the Netherlands. Uh, they are also a programmer for the Camera Japan Film Festival in both Rotterdam and Amsterdam, and they are a former programmer for the Be Underground and Trash, or Butt Festival in Breda. Beautiful welcomes to Theodore Stein. Welcome. Uh, hello. <laughs> nice having you here. I know we talk a lot on the socials, and it's really cool to... Uh, finally speak to you and especially to talk about a fun project like this today yeah i'm really curious what you are going to say about all of it uh, by the way <laughs> you you definitely brought in something that's going to have a lot of uh, mystery and curiosity to it yeah oh yes before we get into that of course though i do like to open things with a quote that pertains to our topic and i felt that i found one that was pretty apt for what we're going to discuss today I've done this before, so for people who listen to the you know the whole show, uh, you may have noticed I've brought in the sublime before instead of beauty. And today I wanted to discuss some other aesthetic form that also coincides with beauty. So you'll find out here in a second. But here is the quote: "Grotesqueries both require and defeat definition. They are neither so regular and rhythmical that they settle into our categories." nor so unprecedented that we do not recognize them at all. They stand at the margin of consciousness between the known and the unknown, the perceived and the unperceived, calling into question the adequacy of our ways of organizing the world, of dividing the continuum of experience into knowable parts. Nah. I love stuff like that. Uh, I'll reveal who said this a little bit later on, but first, Teo, let's talk a bit about you and film and horror. So I know that you are a huge, huge film fan and yeah. intellectually just driven by by cinema. So has yeah. this always been the case? Has this been an early development for you? No, no, no. In fact, it's not. <laughs> I was raised very religiously. And one of the things uh, that came with that was that I was raised very sheltered. And the most of the media we saw were either Christian programs or Disney films. So most of my experiences with cinema were, let's say, not very horrific. So (laughs) when I was about 13, I had an aunt who passed away when I was 15. And she was a very big cinema buff. And she showed me a lot of worldwide cinema, Seven Samurai, Taxi Driver, when I was 13. Right. So my first horror experience also came from my aunt, who showed me Alien for the first time. So I went from Disney to Alien. And that was kind of a shock. Holy crap. Yeah. (laughs) It was kind of a shock. So that 
on the one hand is my first experience with horror as a genre. But I think I had fears of things before. I saw my first horror film when going to church. So a lot of the apocalyptic imagery in uh, the lectures and Hellfire and Brimstone and stuff like that settled my own experience with what I find horrific. And I relate to Paul Schrader and Paul Vuve in that aspect, who were also both raised very religiously and kind of explored that in their later films, how something like the death of Christ is horror imagery, if you think about it. Uh, it's it's uh-huh. killing someone and making it a symbol and making it something iconic. So my first experience with horror was the body of Christ, I would say. <laughs> I think that applies for a lot of people, to be honest. Like, yeah. I, you know, I was raised with a lot of Southern Baptist hellfire and brimstone as well. Yeah. And uh, I remember when I was with my dad, we went to a Pentecostal church. They're pretty extreme at those places. That's where they're kind of having seizures and spitting on each other and stuff. And every single sermon that they gave was just like, the devil is everywhere. Yeah. They just make you paranoid that you're being watched, you're being judged. Yeah. And then when you read the Bible itself, yeah, I I always looked at the death of Christ not as some sort of glorious situation where, oh, I'm so happy that you gave your life for me that you don't know thousands of years later. Yeah. I, I more felt like that poor man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's kind of how I felt the whole time. It's like, why are we really like smiling while we're emul as children emulating the 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 whole walking through the the stations of the cross and stuff? It was very freaky to me. So uh yeah. right. I had a very similar early experience with it too. I it's nice to talk to somebody who's related to that. So one of the fun anecdotes from my past was that I was obsessed with one story in particular mm-hmm. where Christ does an exorcism of a crazed man who says he has thousands of demons in him. He calls himself Legion. Right. And Christ exorcises him and all the demons go into the pigs. And the pigs run straight away into the water, die, and fall off a cliff, gore. And I was obsessed with the story as a 10-year-old child, I think. And there was a contest in which we had to draw our favorite Bible story. And I drew that particular (laughs) story with the gory pig carcasses and all. (laughs) So my teachers found that a bit concerning. (laughs) Yeah, don't trust kids. Yeah. (laughs) It would also be a very early experience with horror, I think. Oh, yeah. I loved that story as a kid. It freaked me out. But yeah, you're right. The whole imagery of Legion and just hearing about it, something like we are Legion, we are many just stuck in my brain and scared me to death. It's so cool, though, that (laughs) you decided to draw it. I I can appreciate that. You never trust kids to just like do the brief the way you ask them to if you had a very specific (laughs) goal in mind. You should be like, name your favorite happy story from the Bible, if that's what you're looking for. It was a contest for the Bible Museum. So someone at the Bible Museum got a drawing of bloody pig carcasses in there. Oh, Mill. wow. <laughs> well, I hope, they, uh, I hope they hung it with pride. <laughs> I hope so, too. I didn't win the contest. <laughs> mm, I wonder why. <laughs> Churches, they got no church, aren't they? Yeah. Uh, so what is it then that 
keeps you coming to cinema since you know it's clearly i mean granted you had some pretty good first you know experiences your aunt did good and yeah. And tossed you one of the best films ever made as one of your earliest horror films. Yeah. Uh, so is there a particular thing or multitude of things that make cinema so special to you? For me, what I really like about cinema in relation to other media forms is that cinema kind of does it all. It does right. storytelling. It does visuals. It does music. It does and I'm autistic, by the way. And one of the things what happens when I watch cinema is it's the only time in the world when I'm focused on something. Mm. And I don't get the outside world. I just get the cinema experience. I get the, uh, the, the, the empathy machine and I focus on what's happening on the screen. And it's the only time the outside world falls away when I watch a film. So that's kind of keeps me going back, you know, because it is a calming force. It's an empathetic force. It's a visual force. It's, 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 it's like this, this enormous wave that washes over me. And it's one of the greatest feelings watching films. That is so beautiful to hear. Like, you know, I talk about beauty in a lot of ways in this podcast, but just the whole beauty of our engagement with film in general I think it's something that could be explored better. And it's really also beautiful to hear how it seems to work to help with mental health. Yeah. And it's definitely helped me too. Having ADHD, you know, I had a similar feeling that it, it would tether me down. You know, if yeah. I was bouncing off the walls, I could watch a movie. I could get stuck in that world and, and just disappear uh, for a bit. That's it. That's exactly it. It's, it's like um, a grounding force for me. Mm, I like that. I don't know if you're aware of it, but there's this project that was just completed on Kickstarter. So they just got it fully backed yeah. called Mental Health and Horror by Jonathan Barkin from, I think he's still working for Dread Central now. I'm super excited for this. Cannot wait. Same. It, it's, it's a very, very fruitful topic. I think what horror does for our mental health and especially what it does for uh, centering yourself and grounding yourself and if it's in horror it's kind of curious why we keep flocking to that even as people mm-hmm. with neurodivergences what what is it about horror that keeps us coming back you know that that's something i really would like to see explored oh yeah it's the age-old question too right yeah because my brother for instance he never watches horror he hates it it's it's it, he he really thinks it's even kind of sick to watch horror. Okay. And I don't, I don't, I find it, <laughs> I never relate to, to horror in a way where I'm thinking this is bad for my mental health. It's more mm-hmm. of a force for good. Yeah. I totally agree with that. Yeah. I, I think that it's the typical attitude of, you know, what you don't know, you don't trust. Of course. So if you're not exposed to it, you're just going to look at all those other people and be like, all I see is blood and pain. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but hey, we are the misfits. We are the weirdos. And uh, I suppose that's part of it. If you were, you know, it's a genre that is pushed to the periphery and we are also pushed to the periphery. And yeah, yeah, it feels comforting because of that. Yeah. And, and of course, as a, as a queer autistic person, I also find the idea of horror 
that it's about the other. Mm-hmm. I find it very interesting that it's about the fear of the other or about coming to to full force as the other. So I relate to that in a way. Um, I, I always found monsters inter- interesting because the othering in there, you know? Yeah. Yeah, monstrosity is a powerful tool in storytelling to yeah. tell stories about a feeling that most people who are normative in any way, whether it's heteronormative or neurotypical or whatever, yeah. they won't fully understand. But I do think that everybody understands being other, even if it's like infinitesimal. You know what I mean? If it's very small, like you've yeah. just not been allowed to be a part of something. So I think that's why monsters are so nice for us. Yeah. And that's why I'm a big fan of Clive Barker, for instance, uh, oh, or yeah. the likes, you know, it's, it's, yeah. Do you have a favorite monster? I think the werewolf. I think the werewolf is, okay. uh, because the werewolf, I find it very interesting as a queer metaphor because it's all about hormones, basically. Uh-huh. And it's all about transforming and it's all about not feeling welcome in your own body. Right. So there, there is a very queer aspect to right. the werewolf that I find as, as a non-binary autistic queer person relatable in a way. It's a topic that's also been brought up a lot in horror discourse that yeah. kind of trans commentary within werewolf stories. And I love it. It's, it's something I hadn't even considered until I saw people talking about it. And the <laughs> more I think of it, the more I'm like, this is why we don't get a lot of werewolf stories because it's so queer and it scares people and they don't want to explore that. And I think we really need more of that. Queerwolves now. Queerwolves. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, that should be the name of the next werewolf movie. Queerwolves. Uh, I want <laughs> make it, write it down. <laughs> so I think we're nicely warmed up. So that means Deo. Yeah. What? Is it we're going to talk about today? We're going to talk about something very obscure. <laughs> I think it only has about below 100 views on Letterboxd, for instance. Wow. <laughs> and it is was shown in cinemas here in the Netherlands. And it's by a Dutch animator okay. called Rosto. And Rosto, I've met him twice in my life. And I always saw his films at festivals. And I found them very interesting and he made four f- films over the past 10 years and they are combined in a, a tetralogy. So the tetralogy, the, um, it's called the The Wreckers tetralogy with two E's, The Wreckers. Mm-hmm. It's, it's um, basically four films combined that tell stories about death and decay and loss and becoming a rock star and not fulfilling your purpose and all sorts of themes in a very grotesque and interesting way because it's half live action, half animation, a bit of stop motion in there, a bit of puppetry, a bit of everything, basically. And it doesn't look like anything else. It doesn't sound like anything else. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't flow like anything else. Not at all. It's really its own thing. And if you're curious to watch it, you can watch it on Vimeo on demand. And I would urge you to do so because you're not going to have seen anything like it before. I have to agree. It's one of the more unique things that I've seen. um, Yeah, so normally I give a brief synopsis for the film. And I 
Honestly, yeah, I'm going to say what I wrote down, but it's pretty much what you just said, because there isn't much to synopsize, I suppose, if you could say it that way. Yeah. Uh, but yes, it's presented in a series of four shorts. The Wreckers Tetralogy is a mix of animation and live action visual storytelling that marks the complexity and chaos of the evolution of a band called The Wreckers. We follow one of the band's members through various dream and nightmare scapes as he goes through various stages of decay over time. The final product is a frenetic, abstract account of our dreams, our lives, and how we return to ourselves even when we feel we have left ourselves behind. That's at least what I got through. Yeah. At least a couple of the shorts. I will say the four of them together was a wild ride to I watch know. in one go. I know. It's it's a lot. It's a lot. It's It's barely comprehensible at times. Sometimes, yes. And there is a lot of symbolic imagery going on, a lot of Christian symbolism also, so we will mm. go into that. There's a lot of horrific imagery, but one of the things I found very interesting, we discussed it a bit beforehand, you were telling me that you found it hard to pinpoint it as horror. And one of the things I find very interesting is that there, there's a, a lot of horrific imagery, but... I kind of get where you're coming from that you're you're afraid to call it mm-hmm. horror. So why was that for you? It felt now granted, I do wonder how much the documentary attached to it clouded my feelings on the actual piece since I watched them I watched the piece and then I watched the doc. And now knowing a bit more about it being like the motivations of the band and and how it was very autobiographical didn't feel to me that the artistry here was really exploring any of the feelings of fear and of like losing anything, for instance, like you could see the evolution of what the band was going through and especially what the singer was going through, but as dark and grimy as it all was, it just felt very like, but that's just the way it is. You just kind of like, it's very accepting of all the ugly bits of life, which is a wonderful optimistic kind of attitude to have with this thing. So for me, I guess the horror part of it, I was like, Oh, well, as much as I see a severed head that is decaying and its eyes, the only thing that seems to have any semblance of life, you know, yeah. the vision that an artist has is the only thing yeah. that remains. But it didn't really feel like there was anything to fear with that. That's just the next phase, basically. So because of that, I felt like, okay, okay, I see where you're going with this. Um, but it, it is true. If you were not picking up all those things, I could imagine somebody's going to sit back and watch this and go, oh, my word. what? <laughs> it, is, it is intense. I'm not going to take that away from it. It's very intense. So what I want to say about that vision of the decaying head one of the interesting things that was for me a scene when I watched it, it's it's interesting for me because I had the same idea by the vision of the severed head where I was like, why doesn't this disgust me? Why doesn't this horrify me? And I think in every other director's hand, so let's paint the scene, there is a kid dreaming and the, the kid dreams about corpses but we could also say that the corpse is dreaming about the kid. It's it's vice versa. And yeah. there is an instance later in one of the shorts called reruns where the kid is replaced 
by the corpse. So there is a kid lying between the parents, but instead of the kid dreaming, it's now the corpse head dreaming. And I found it melancholy and I found it bittersweet and I found it harrowing, but not in a horror way, but in a, in a sad mournful uh, passage of time way. But why? Because the image of a dreaming kid replaced by a severed corpse head is in the hands of Dario Argento or, or Eli Roth or Lars von Trier even, it would be the most sick and twisted thing ever. Mm-hmm. And what for me I found interesting about it is um, you have a scholar called Noel Carroll mm-hmm. and Noel Carroll calls uh, or two things. It has to be either fear or disgust. I think both are missing here. And I think the corpse are is not really disgusting. It's more grotesque. And then we go into the religious imagery of the film. All of it is, is grotesque in the same way the biblical story I talked about at the beginning was horrifying to me, but also something I was attracted to. Mm-hmm. So in, in, in the Rosto shorts, there is a lot of symbolism going on that kind of removes us from the disgust. And it's both a mournful symbolism, it's a religious symbolism, it's an artful symbolism, but the symbolism removes us from feeling the horror, even though the images are all quite fucked up in a way. Oh, yeah. I totally get where you're coming from here. And I'm... I have my issues with Carol's formulation of... like I feel he's a little limited with the two, but... Because for me, also with this, I was disgusted by a lot of this film, but that's where we're getting into taste. You know what I mean? Yeah. So if you take Kant's three judgments that he tends to work with the most, yeah. you have the good, the agreeable and the beautiful found it very good, extremely well made, took my breath away with the craftsmanship that was put on here. Uh, I can see the beauty of it as well in certain instances, but it, didn't agree with me in some ways. Now, granted, some of it has to do with just very specific sensory things that are just like, yeah. oh, my brain, my brain was not made for this. <laughs> and in other things, it was more that, oh, this is very disgusting to me. I, I found the caricaturishness pretty disgusting, but not in a I'm going to vomit kind of way, in a very no. grotesque kind of way. And so, well, that's great. We can go to the quote that I yeah. mentioned earlier. So that's from Jeffrey Harpham, who is a scholar who writes a lot about the grotesque in philosophy. And this is from a book he wrote uh, called On the Grotesque. So very simply, he's just unpacking the historical and philosophical accounts of it. And I think that it was very apt because, he, you know, they talk about the grotesque as that kind of in-between state. You can't really put your finger on it, why it makes you feel the way it makes you feel. Even though it, it is disgusting, it is horrifying, but it's also beautiful, but it's also this. And I feel that the the grotesqueness of this piece is just so much in the forefront and yeah. so strong that that is it. That is the feeling that you get when you're watching it. Yeah. So the horror of it is just somewhere in the background possibly from the artists themselves. I mean, you are talking about somebody's feelings of uh, being replaced or falling apart over time and not understanding how to do the things that they used to know how to do. So I'm sure for them, it's a much different emotion than a viewer outside of their situation. 
but so yeah that's why it kind of like clicked with me like okay i like the to bring the grotesque here because yeah the way it's studied as well it's it's kind of firmly cemented if you were to look at like a map it's between the sublime and the beautiful basically it's right there yeah. in between the two and it just fills up this gap in its ugly little face <laughs> making sure like i'm not scary but i'm not that beautiful either but there's something very powerful about me and so, uh, yeah that's yeah. how i felt watching this so i wanted to address two things about the grotesque in a way mm-hmm. so one thing to mention is one thing that attracts me to this tetralogy is all the symbolism in it mm-hmm. because a lot of the grotesque imagery signals other things and references other things so one of the most interesting things to me is how it talks about the idea of art and religion as kind of interchangeable in the second short lonely bones Mm -hmm. because there is a director there played by rosto who plays a very uh, faustian devil-like figure while the protagonist becomes a christ-like figure yeah. And instead of Christ's words, it's done, the director says, it's a rap. Yeah. So it's the same quote. It's, it's, it's finished. It's finished. It's done. It's finished. It's a rap. Then after, there is a shot of the Christ-like figure floating in the air constantly, repeating a loop. Yeah. While the wishing well we saw, where, where he's falling in and out of, becomes first a centerpiece of a church and immediately after the centerpiece of a museum. So there is a connection there. I think that Rosto is saying that the grotesque imagery of death and decay in the way it has been used in religion as apocalyptic imagery is similar to the way art can be about those topics and can make the topics of decay and death something more and something iconic and something symbolic and something bigger than dying. Hmm. And it brings me to the second topic because Rosto, while he made the last film reruns was dying of cancer. Oh wow. And he knew that he was dying of cancer and he died when he was 50 and he was planning to make a feature film based on a graphic novel series mm-hmm. from which the D Records Tetralogy is a spin-off. Okay. And he wanted to make that feature film as a linchpin. He never could make that feature film. So the graphic novel is its own thing. You can find it on mymygap.com. And there's a lot of connections to every short he made basically in there. But the linchpin of his universe, the feature film that would tie everything together, he couldn't make. That's a shame. And I think there is a lot of regret in reruns. Reruns is for me about accepting your your dying mm. and accepting uh your becoming you you're progressing from a from a child into a corpse and the corpse eventually becomes an icon yeah he becomes taller than life he becomes a walking big skeleton and his eye the eye of the art basically the the, the, the eye of the skeleton that's been related to art at the end ends up in the sky carried by a bird yeah and if you know what the first shot of the first first uh, film in the thing was, it was a big eye in the sky, the sun, mm-hmm. the iconic all-seeing eye in the sky, the sun. So it 
ends where it starts, basically, with an eye in the sky. So it's it's about the progress we make from a child to a corpse to an icon. And I think Rosto was kind of trying to accept the fact that he couldn't do the things he wanted to do in life. So one of the last shots is all his incarnations, all the incarnations of his character, Virgil, watching himself play as a skeleton on the screen while his eye, his art, becomes an icon. And I think that's quite profound. That is incredible. Yes, I'm. I'm just feeling it right now. So yeah, you, this is a great recontextualization for me. I, I, I have a feeling that you told me about that that he he passed away of cancer, yes. and uh, but I just did not realize that he was already going through that process while yeah. making all of this. And with that in mind, and a lot of the different shots make a little bit more sense to me now as well. Right. Yeah, and also if you want to get back to that religious iconography it seems that he keeps bringing that in to kind of show that's like two worlds as you mentioned you have art you have religion they're very similar to each other yeah and it's kind of the two lives that or at least the two worlds that he kind of walked through throughout his life and can see these things and see the similarities so i, I do love the imagery at the end when the bird takes the eye and it's like a transcendence You're right. it's also right. aggressive it's a very interesting right. thing how the bird just yeah. plucks it and it just, you're gone into obscurity. Yeah, and it kind of feels like also a bit of a downer ending, you know? The the, the, the eye in the sky where you're like, oh, wow, this, this, everything about this person who Rosto was, who his alter ego was, is gone. Mm-hmm. There's a walking skeleton and there's an eye that gets plucked by a bird and nothing remains. Yeah. Apart from the works themselves, of course, but it is true without the artists to actually breathe some context into their work, you know, over time, it's going to become guesses. People are just going to look at it and wonder what they're looking at because he can't really tell you. So this is really cool because we're actually uh, helping along to keep that eye a little lower. It's not fully in the clouds just yet, you know? Right, right. And I really hope people will seek out his work because I think it's singular i think it's unlike anything out there Mm. and for me one of the things i i I have revisited it three times this week in preparation for this podcast and i keep seeing new things Mm -hmm. i keep seeing new details which keep bringing symbolism into focus for instance one thing i didn't clock which i saw now in the third short splinter time there is it's it's about about the Wreckers being the band being brought out from limbo into afterlife, basically. That's the story. Okay. But but the thing about uh, they are in limbo in 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 a ambulance mm-hmm. with a I- iconic, sexy nurse who kind of is a force for good, maybe. But the thing about the ambulances and i never clocked it bef- that before it's also a hearse yeah it is yeah it <laughs> has the shape of a hearse and it has um the interior of a hearse yeah so there are a lot of doubling symbolisms going on so for instance in the second short lonely bones the jesus-like character is thrown into a well right that well has a lot of spikes on it it's the crown of thorns mm-hmm is Jesus' crown of thorns. 
because there's also barbed wire around the well. And there is a will on top of it. And I don't know if you know the connection between Jonah and Jesus in Christianity, but there are a lot of connections made between the two okay. where the, the, the story of Jonah is connected to the death of Jesus and the three days in limbo for Jesus and the three days of in the will for Jonah are connected oh. to each other in religious doctrine. And I think that's, that's a reference for sure. That's a reference for sure that Rostow made and knew about and uh-huh. tried to tell us. And it is also a connection to an earlier short of him called Jonah Tomberry, oh, there where there's also Jonah. <laughs> so a lot of there, there's a lot of overlap going on and a lot of images going on. And one single one I also want to point out is, for instance, what he does by referencing film constantly and the idea that film and dreams are the same. Because in reruns, for instance, in the dream city where the characters are living and thriving, Mm -hmm. there is a shot of a flat in which the kid is dreaming. And the flat is the high rise. The high rise is constantly shown and the camera pans down. And it's the same room over and over and over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. That's a film strip, Chandler. That's a film strip. Ah, it's the same that. image repeated. Yeah. And there's a lot of stuff like that going on. It's the film strip. So the dream is the film. That's fair. Yeah. And I remember in the documentary, they were also like, he was really enamored by that quote from John Lennon, which also shows up in, I think it was the third yeah. short is where they use the John Lennon one. The first. The first one. Okay. I can't remember the exact quote, but it was something along the lines of if uh, if you dream alone, it's just a dream. If you dream together, it's reality. Yeah, right. And I, you know, for him to bring that back in the documentary as well, it just shows how important that was to him of showing like right. your dreams are only you're only going to shape the world by sharing things with people yeah. and bringing them into your world. And film is a great way to do that. Right. <laughs> Well, probably the most direct feed into somebody's imagination that you could ever give because you have all the elements that anybody can connect to. You have the visuals, you have the sound, you have the story. So to what you were saying earlier about your own connection with cinema, I can see why this particular piece can resonate with you so well, considering it is an artist who's making the same claim in their own way. Right. And I think what I want to connect that to is... It has been said that nothing is more boring than listening to someone else's dreams. (laughs) And there is a lot of dream logic going on. But I don't think this film is boring because it touches on bigger things and bigger symbolism and bigger feelings that can be connected to Rostow's dream world. Mm -hmm. And it it is fairly singularly his vision, but... He makes us feel certain things and certain ideas he has about art, about religion, about death, especially because all these films are about death. Mm. Uh, like the first one is about mourning yeah. the loss of a dead friend. It's, it's 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 basically someone living together with a corpse and being stuck in a loop of regret and a loop of grief. Yeah, I loved that in the lyrics to the song, you had the band saying, he's not dead, he's just dreaming. Right, right. And so the second short is about death becoming 
art. Okay, yeah. That becoming religion, that becoming more than something. The third short is about getting past that art, past that idea of 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 symbolism and going into from limbo into real life and passing on. So it's 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 about going out of the dream into reality and accepting the fact that you're dead. Mm, I can see that. The fourth film for me is is all about accepting this is it. I'm dead. Yeah. I'm I'm now dead. I'm now a corpse. I'm so it kind of moves through some of the stages of grief in a way. So mm-hmm. I would say that the first film is like depression. The second film is a bit bargaining. Splinter time is maybe denial. And then reruns would be acceptance, mm-hmm. which leaves out one thing, which we mentioned before, anger. Because mm-hmm. you said these films were very sweet and empathetic. Anger is not here. Yeah. There is no anger about death. There is no anger about... There are devil figures. There are corpses. There are skeletons. But there's no anger about it. There's no there's no aggressive bone in any of its body. No. These are kind of kind films, in a way. Very kind. There's no bitterness in this. And I no. think most filmmakers or storytellers would try to go like... And they all sucked. And they all made me feel bad. And they got all rot... And I liked that they chose to show kind of archetypes of people that they've experienced in their lives in a very honest way. So take like the, I don't know if that was the school janitor or just some teacher or somebody who is at a school, uh, an authority figure at school that way, an adult at school who's just kind of like, yeah, what are you doing in here? But then like never really got to the point, never really caught up to you, but just belittles you, laughs at you, but it's pretty harmless overall. There's just a mean fat guy basically. (laughs) And uh, I liked that there's no commentary on that. It's just there to show like, this is a thing he had to deal with. And then for the rest, you see how school for him was just wild chaos of kids running around being insane and, yeah, he did have the shame of not graduating high school and thinking, well, you don't have a life. We take your life away from you because you don't have a degree. When he's like, I make my life. And yeah, I, I loved that they explored it while still having this touch of, as you mentioned, regret. The regret is so full in the yeah. last, what was it called again? The final one? Reruns. Reruns. Yeah. 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 And, you know, it is him literally rerunning through his life in, in multiple directions. Yeah. But just kind of. I feel a smile in all of this. Yeah. Not, a, not, not always a big one, but at least a smile. And that's interesting to me because what you say, it's very grotesque. And it also goes very deep into the uncanny valley mm, at God, times yeah. <laughs> with the masks and the half animated half live action faces. And it's, it's mm-hmm. deliberately unhuman in a way yeah but i also find it very humanistic because the corpse in the first short is decaying but it's also a friend it's also yeah mourning it's also a loss it's it's not about the disgust of the decaying corpse it's about the horror of being stuck in a loop of regret and grief and it's a it it, it plays around with ghosts figures in the form of the wreckers and ghost hotels and trying to escape that loop and 
being stuck in the dream and all that kind of horrific imagery. But what stands for me at the end is he's not that he's only dreaming. Right. He, he escapes at the end of the short and then becomes a Christ-like figure and yada, yada, yada. But the thing is, for all its uncanny valley trappings, all its horror trappings, there is no disgust with death. True. There's no fear of death either, even, maybe. There's a fear of getting stuck in a loop. Fair, yeah. But there is an acceptance of death at the end. In a way, I guess it's kind of something that all artists go through to a degree that uh, I know I have it to a certain extent that finality and an end to all of this, this feeling, is somewhat of a peaceful thought just because that drive to continue to create feels like an endless task. You're never happy with what you create. You have to continue to make something else. And you always have something to say, (laughs) something to share. And at a certain point, I I can imagine a man like Rosto, when you were told you have you here is your deadline, basically. This is the like the limitation we have for you. You're gonna die at this point. You're just probably gonna go like I get to know when I get to go to sleep. Yeah. It wouldn't surprise me. It wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. Because the quote of David Bowie, he quotes, uh, we're all Mm -hmm. there's no journey. We're all uh, arriving and departing at the same time. True. It also says something about how he views, and especially in reruns, how he views life itself, like a simultaneous still being a child, being a corpse, yes. being everything all at once. So I think there is an idea there that even though he was regressing into death, he was also still that child he was once. Mm-hmm. And the, the the imagery in reruns is based on a home video of himself as a kid. Okay. So there is, there is, it, it's his parents' living room we see there. All right. So there's a lot of autobiographical imagery in reruns for the char- character of Virgil. Virgil is him, and all the other characters are also him in a way. Right. So one of the wreckers is named Wrecker Rosto, and Wrecker Rosto becomes Virgil. Uh, one of the, the, the skeleton figure at the end is called Virgil. He comes from another okay. Rosto project. And Diddy Bob, the protagonist of the first one, is also based on Rosto. So all these characters are, in a way, based on Rosto and alter egos of himself all going through certain aspects of life. And what I find interesting is that I saw on a letterbox that these, these films were included in a list of films about dissociation. Hmm. So not being yourself uh, not relating to your own body being outside of your own body and mm-hmm. in lonely bones for instance diddy bob is watching himself on the bed with the corpse yeah so there are two diddy bobs there and so there is a lot of imagery in here about not being in your own body um, being outside of your own body going from real life into a dream going from dream into real life and being everything at once and nothing at once and that is kind of a horrific idea the idea of dissociation in that way and dissociation can be horrific i i have had uh sort of out of body experiences when i have autistic meltdowns Hmm. uh, where i don't really have a sense of self in a way 
And I relate to the idea that Rostow in his films is exploring the idea of what the mind-body connection means uh, through alter egos and what the the idea that your body may be dying and is going to die someday and the idea that you are still the child you were once but also the future self of yourself through the idea of alter egos. And I, I found that I never thought about the topic of dissociation in these films before I saw it mentioned on the letterbox list, but I would like to mention it in regards to the idea of horror uh, in these films, mm-hmm. these films, because the idea that all these characters are in a way Rosto and none of them are, is something that is kind of horrific, but also kind of beautiful in a way, if you get what I mean. I totally understand where you're coming from. I also feel that his use of the grotesque, I feel, is it serves the horror to an extent in that there, I basically see it as a horror of grotesqueries. Yeah. And it's more of an experiential thing because when I was watching it, although I didn't have any fear necessarily, I did feel very uncomfortable for most of it. And now granted I have ADHD. So some of this really hyperactive stuff just made me like have to look away. Right. Like my, the moments in the hallways in the first film, I was just like, I hate the pacing of this movie. I hate the editing of this thing. I'm fucking angry. Like I was getting very upset while watching it, which I understood you know, fortunately, I, I can take that extra step and go like, I know right. this is what you wanted me to feel. It right. doesn't mean I like feeling it, you know, uh, but that's the it point. It is intense. It, it, it is the idea of this, the stuck in loop of dissociation and regret and mourning as a kind of a hyperactive zoetrope kind of effect where these yeah. horror figures, these ghosts become animated and it's... It's fucking intense. So I get what you mean. It's 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 a lot. Th- these films are a lot. Yeah. His style choices are very impactful. They because what I I both appreciate but also had a hard time with was right. just how he has such a strong artistic vision that it's really like I'm not doing this at all for anybody else. No. It was very clear from the art and <laughs> just the way, the way it was made because it was so jarring sometimes. But what's a brilliant use of the grotesque? Because the whole right. point of the grotesque is that it kind of destabilizes things. It breaks down your preconceptions. This is why church iconography uses it so often is because if you're trying to explain something that you shouldn't be able to understand, they're going to give you something that you already can't comprehend as an image. Right. It's, 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 it's exactly that. Its use of imagery is so over the top and so extreme that it becomes disconnected from anything in reality, while also not becoming the sublime, as you said, it's, it's close to the sublime, yeah. but it's it's in that limbo. And I think limbo is is a is a thing he keeps exploring in these films. In these films, mm-hmm. it's all about being stuck in a place you don't want to be. And the fact that you had that same feeling while watching it, I can understand that. You know, it's it's. I come from 
the idea that the, the grotesque is one of my favorite things about cinema in a way. Hmm. Uh, I really like the the grandiose imagery of religion. It's, I have a love-hate relationship with, with religion itself. Mm-hmm. But I find the symbolism something I keep returning to and something I keep gravitating towards. And the same thing is happening with film. I really love films that there is no such thing for me as over the top. Because <laughs> if a film is called over the top, you will know I will see it. I will see it immediately. <laughs> and for me, I can understand why it this is way too much for some people. Uh, a friend of mine, I, mm-hmm. I, I told her that I would be in this podcast. And I told her I would talk about Rosto. And she Googled, Googled it and she was like, I'm noping out. No, <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not gonna watch this. I'm not even gonna listen to the podcast. This is too much. Oh, this is not for me. Okay. She, she hates faces that are unfamiliar, that are uncanny, which is grotesque. Yeah. And then you would have a very hard time with with these films. Did you show her the band by any chance? I don't know what she googled, but she googled Rosto, and she was like, <laughs> "Oh, she did it herself." Right. Yeah. So I don't know what she saw, but what she saw was enough for her to know this wasn't for her. <laughs> and uh, I, I get why you with your ADHD might find the visuals and the auditory experimentations mm-hmm. because the audio is also very intense and very droney at times. Yeah. Why you found it too much. I like that. I- like I do actually love things like ambience and drone and I, I'm pretty, I think that's where my ADHD, like I have an auditory like stimulant thing. Yeah. So if it's pretty wild music wise, like I love industrial music and one of my yeah. favorite records from like the last year was called raining cement. And it was a guy who just like recorded sounds <laughs> from a factory and just turned it into the most industrial hellscape music so i do like that stuff but yeah visually is when it was flashing and moving around too much and i couldn't quite like like just sit still i want to see one of these images and then when i got a good look at them i was like no i just like oh i have the same thing that your friend had that with the distorted faces and the inability to really it's almost like a rorschach test with some of these characters how i'm just like what are you i know what you are and yet i don't i did love rosto's explanation for this in the documentary though how the, yeah. it came from that painting of the band yeah exactly um so he mentions in the documentary how he made a painting of his friends in the band and how they are in a way really distorted but they have the characteristics of the band members clearly yeah represented and I think that painting itself references Francis Bacon in a style, in a way, the, the the painter Francis Bacon. Oh yeah, I could see that. So there is there's a lot of Francis Bacon to the imagery, and I think Francis Bacon is kind of horrific in a way in his imagery. Yeah. And there is also I saw connections with, for instance, uh, German expressionism a lot in the, mm-hmm. those films uh, more now, but also some of the surrealism of uh, people like, for instance, Lynch, the dark, the dark horror nightmare escapes of Lynch. And I also wanted to make a connection with two other people. 
ETA Hoffman's Der Sandman, okay. which is, 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 is a gothic horror novel about the uncanny in a way and about a lot of eye trauma. And I think there are some yeah. images that Rosto takes from a similar place as ETE Hoffman does, where you don't know what's a puppet or what's a person. And there are plucked out eyes and there are decaying corpses. And there is a lot of ETA Hoffman gothic-like uncanny valley shit going on in these films. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I also want to connect it to the uh, to the work of uh, Jorge Boetgereit, I don't know if you uh, ever watched something from Budgerite. No, and I'm very happy that you said that name. Uh, Necromantic is most famous. Okay, I know of his work, but I have not seen it. So uh, Budgerite is uh, someone who makes films that are quite shocking. Mm -hmm. Like Necromantic is infamous for a reason, but... Most of his films are obsessed with the idea of decay as something other than decay. So he made a film called Der Todesking, and Der Todesking is all about suicidal ideation. And it's very harsh and very heavy, but it's like nine shorts about suicidal ideation and about dying and about decay, but none of them are really quite horror they are more avant-garde or more Mm -hmm. explorations of styles of documentary like subjects or or even even form experimentations and we still see that film really as horror because the idea of thinking about decay and death as something other than horrific and we're gonna go back to that idea again here is something that's foreign to us. And I think Budgerite goes so far with his obsession that people still find it horrific and still find it can't relate to it. But Rostov finds finds that sweet spot that he is obsessed with that. He is obsessed with decay. He is obsessed with uh-huh. the idea that your body will decompose someday. Reruns is all about yeah. decomposure. Going from childhood to decomposure. But it's not Budgerite. It's not going so far that we are like, oh my God, this is gross. I'm noping out. The noping out is in the Uncanny Valley. It's in the style. It's in the extremeness of some of the images. But death and decay is not the disgust here. And if we go back to Noah Carroll, if Noah Carroll says that horror is partly about disgust and we cannot maybe agree with that, but if we would say that would be true, uh-huh. and if we, we would take away the decay, what is left over? And what is left over for me is melancholy. Right. It's very melancholy. And I think it becomes increasingly melancholy. It's like the first short is quite horrific. The second short is quite horrific. But with the third and fourth shorts, we are in another zone. And I think that's one of the reasons why you were maybe surprised uh, to talk about this one or thinking is this horror because it it moves away it moves away from the fear uh-huh. of that it moves away from the disgust of that it moves away from the loops because in splinter time we break out of the loop of mourning and that and we return to the loop in reruns but in reruns the loop is about acceptance it's about the idea that 
we become corpses and that's okay. We will die someday and that's okay. So the last feeling we have when watching these films is not horror. It's not disgust. It's acceptance. And that's really why I do, do think that you're were wondering why I perceive this as horror. Because I think in a way, Rosto takes away the horror increasingly. Right. That's a really good point. And I appreciate that breakdown of it because I agree with you. It really did come from this tonal shift of this melancholic kind of, yeah, I like, I like the word you used acceptance. Yeah. Not to say that acceptance of death cannot be a horror trope, but it is true. It's done in such a way that I don't think anybody apart from, you know, like you say through the aesthetics of it, the visuals, that's the stuff that I can see putting people off. But if you look at the actual point of the piece, or just vibing with the energy that it's giving off. It's not there to fetishize anything. No. Most of the time, that's where we get in with accepting death. You know, I'm a, I'm a nice little goth kid. I don't know how it is. You're just going to like hang out in you know cemeteries and, and yeah. romanticize that crap. And there's nothing romantic here. It's really just like, no. hey, you know, it's been a good run. And I'm going to end up the way everybody else has ended up. And you will too. And... My art still exists. Exactly. That's me. I'm my art. So I really don't care what happens to this body. That's fine. That's kind of how this thing feels. Yeah. Which I, it can be a little glum for some people, I'm sure. But that's yeah. where the melancholy comes from. It's not, you know, melancholy isn't the happiest of emotions. No. <laughs> uh, but it is not horror. No. If you have a melancholy, there is always this element of comfort in what you're doing. Right. You're, it's like a comforting depression to where you're just like, well, I'm not the happiest. I'm not sparkling, but I'm also okay with this. This is fine. Right, right. And so I think then the most noticeable thing, if we return to the image of the decaying head between the sleeping parents, is that we don't feel disgust. We don't feel horror. We, I, I felt it was profound. Mm. I felt it was a profound image. And it becomes something more than a romanticized notion of uh, like Boudkerite. You said, you said about the fetishization of death. Boudkerite has a dead fetish. Yes. <laughs> he has a dead fetish. Um, but here there is comfort. And I think one of the most comforting things we can think about if we think about our childhood is lying between your parents while you're having a nightmare. Yeah. So it's a very comforting image that he distorts with the corpse but it still stays comforting it 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 focuses more on the dream and focuses more on the parents than the decay and i find that very striking because no other filmmaker would do it in that way no other filmmaker yeah not that i know of um it also brings up another thing i want to kind of briefly mention and i think it's a great educational bit for for my listeners as well is that in that moment, so using the head between the parents, I also had a feeling of just normalcy for it. Yeah. And the reason why I think this whole whole thing works and where horror comes from in, in play here, we are also breaching on the topic of subjectivity versus objectivity and how there are certain aesthetic forms that are more objectively present. I would say like the grotesque beauty sublime. Yeah. Those are objective. They're, they're, this is a beautiful piece and it is grotesque. There's just no way around it. I don't no. think anybody could argue otherwise because they have formal properties. 
Horror, however, is a very subjective genre. And I think that is where a lot of conversations on the genre tend to get screwed up is because people want to see it as one of the higher levels. If we want to like put it like a ladder, like way up on the top tier, maybe they're not the like horror is not at the tip of your iceberg. It's more underneath the water somewhere and how you are looking through the water distorts your vision. So I could imagine that if we were parents who saw that image, right. we might have a different relationship with it and might have a different feeling to it. But be, I, I mean, I don't know if you're a parent. I'm not, but I'm not. Uh, not. Apart from my cat, but with my cat, I'm like, you know, I've seen animals come and go as well. So I have that. I already have a sense of mortality with a pet. I know that there's a yeah. time limit on that creature. As a parent with your child, you are expecting to die before them. Yeah. You're not expecting to ever even think about your child as a corpse. And for him to put that image in there wow. is yeah. jarring. It's horrifying right. from that perspective. I get chills thinking about that. Right. From his perspective, yeah. he's the kid. He's like, but it, to think of yourself as a corpse, I think is something that everybody goes through at some point right. in their lives. So I just thought you, you brought up a wonderful moment that really shows how horror is a blurry topic. And that's why right. I also addressed it the way I did. I didn't want to say like, hey, Teo, I don't think this is a horror. I was just wanted to make sure that I wasn't lost, basically. Now, I do think it's horror. I can see it. But I do think it's horror because of the Uncanny Valley, because of the connections mm-hmm. to more now and uh, gothic horror and because of all those things. But if you ask me if I feel fear or disgust or horror when watching these films... I don't, but also maybe because I'm very familiar with Rosso's work. I've seen these shorts many a time at the festival. I've I've talked to him two times. Uh I've read the graphic novel uh, on which these are based. I've seen all his earlier shorts. I've been basically obsessed with his oeuvre since I was 14. So I'm very familiar with it. But if I would show this to my brother... (laughs) Yeah, fair. Whom he talks about, yeah. he would be like, Taya, stop. He wouldn't curse, <laughs> but he would be like, Jesus Christ, why are you showing me this? Because he is a parent and he is Christian, and he he would feel that maybe the the, the Christ imagery of the protagonist being used as a right bloodied up corpse floating in a studio setting with green screen behind it would be blasphemy or offensive or, or horrific or things like that. So that goes again into the subjectivity of horror where I was like mm-hmm. wanting to show Rosto's work to everyone I know. And I've shown it to a lot of people, but my friend Carline was like, I'm noping out. My brother would, I wouldn't show it to my brother. Um, another friend of mine, Ashley, who, whom I showed it to, they were very, very impressed with the the piece and they were like this is brilliant this this should be considered a masterpiece and then here you are where you're like i think it's good but i don't find it agreeable yeah yeah it doesn't speak like it doesn't agree with my senses that's basically what it is (laughs) so it is the the subjectivity of is this horror but also the subjectivity of is this good Uh it's so singular that there is no way everyone would bring the same things out of it that I take out of it. Fair. And 
but I would urge people to watch this shit. You know, I would urge people to go to Vimeo on demand and watch it because whatever your takeaway is, if you find it agreeable or if you find it non-agreeable, it is singular. It is. It's challenging too. And I think that that is something that a lot of film viewers have lost over the hundred plus years that cinema's been with us is that it started as a very challenging art form. You can't say even when it got a little bit more commodified and they started to make it look more like theater. I I just can't imagine somebody looking at the cabinet of Dr. Caligari for the first time and going, Oh yeah, this, this totally makes sense and doesn't challenge me in any single way. Like it's not a very straightforward production. You do have to like, feel your way through before you can make a judgment call on it. And nowadays people watch films just to kind of, you know, mental drain for ease. And I love that comfort films are wonderful, but it is very good with art to challenge yourself from time to time. And one thing you said, you mentioned Caligari here. Mm -hmm. One thing I find interesting because Caligari is challenging still to watch. Oh, yeah. Uh, It is a lot, but we wouldn't maybe perceive that as horror anymore. We know it's a horror film. It's it's, it's known to be a horror film. It has a lot of horror tropes. But do you watch Caligari and are like, ooh, I'm I'm, I'm scared. Ooh, I'm disgusted. Ooh, I'm... No, there's a distance there. And I think one of the things that you might have trouble to pinpoint this as horror is because Rosto also really returns to the form of silent cinema in a way and to some of the tropes of German expressionism and some of the images of gothic horror and early stuff. For me personally, I would say no, just because I have a rather intimate relationship with those things. Like I love silent expressionist films, but I will Mm -hmm. say this. It's the last two pieces, I think, that did it for me. It's when it took that harsh shift into something more contemplative. Yeah. That if we had stopped on film two, yeah, I don't think I would have had a question. Right. You know, the image of him, I would have more questions about like, okay, so let's unpack this. What sort of imagery? What are the right. references here? But yeah, just the image of him being torn back and forth and this commentary on... Let's say, okay, so to to the point you're making, like not showing your brother or anybody who would be very devout, they would find it blasphemous to see this Christ-like figure. The reason it's blasphemous is because basically Rust is saying, yeah, they basically commodified Jesus, didn't they? Because he did it in a film set where it's like, okay, well, we've tortured this person back and forth and back and forth and ripped them to shreds for their art and we don't care. But we care that we got our movie made and we can right. all put it in museums and then the cinemas and you can see it and we can worship the point that I made while this body is destroyed. It is the, the corpse in that short. That's why I was kind of surprised you were questioning if it was horror. It's <laughs> one of the most grinded up. It's nasty. There, There's a shot in which the, the puppet character the the, the 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 puppet human hybrid character because they are all puppet human hybrids lands with his eye which has his been eye hole. Before, yeah. on a spike and then his head is torn apart while he yep. is being pulled down by gravity and it's it's one of the goriest horrific scenes 
in this in in those four films and it's it's like the imagery is there the horror is there is everywhere but rosto moves away from that and the mm-hmm. interesting thing about those shorts is lonely bones and no place like home the first two shorts and his graphic novel so if you're gonna read the graphic novel online on my, mygap.com uh, you can watch all the chapters as vimeo links because flash is not around anymore they were flash animations and the last two chapters in the graphic novel are no place like home and lonely bones they end okay. the graphic novel cool so it's it, it it completes the story then we move on to the rest of the the records tetralogy mm-hmm. and we leave behind the story of mind my gab in a way and it becomes more about rosto and his feelings about his own work yeah. But the last two shorts, it's 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 a tetralogy. It's four shorts that tell a continuous story because every short starts at the same shot as the letter shot short yes. ended. There is a continuation here. There's a continuation of imagery. So there is X marks the spot is a symbol that comes mm-hmm. back and back and back again. Yeah, that is one. The idea of um, plucked out eyes is coming back and back again. The idea of Christ emerging, uh, the idea of corpses, the idea of... So there is a lot of continuation between the shorts. But I think that the first two shorts are Rosto ending his oeuvre as a graphic novelist and as a ending his world because he wanted to make everything, everything he has made as a filmmaker, as a graphic novelist or as a musician. Mm-hmm was part of the Mind My Gap world. Yeah. Everything was part of this one big oeuvre. And he closes that in chapter two. So what do we have after you close your life work? We have a short about moving on from limbo, moving from one world to the next. And the Mind My Gap world is kind of limbo in the graphic novel. So we kind of move away from his world to reality and reruns is all about his reality it's all about his dream world but it's about rosto himself more than it's about any other character in his work it's it's about all his alter egos coming to accept rosto is dying and it's profound i think it really is i I guess that is true if you watch it as a whole because that's the final message that you get it does wash away the rest. And that's probably where my brain was going. And also, I I was also watching the documentary when I was telling you. And because he had such a, I don't know, he's just such a nice dude. Just kind of, yes, he was the the band. We just had fun and I just like to make things and they're nice. And I was like, I don't really hear you talking about any intent to like make us uncomfortable or unnervous or anything. So I was like, that's why I started to get the question of like, was there even any intent for this to be horror? Does he just like this sort of imagery? But it is true now that you mentioned, you know, I, I had to, Keep in mind, these are also this is the first watch I've ever had, and right. it's, hard, it's really hard to in one. If you watch it as a feature film, it's hard to keep in mind that this is four things split up over ten years. Yeah. So obviously, your intent in your art project can shift in that time, right. and it took a huge shift right. at the end. Um, but yeah, if we were to look at them as individual shorts, I would totally argue that the first two shorts are easily classifiable as horror shorts, right. no doubt in my mind. 
And it, oddly enough, even the final one has a lot of that horror imagery, but because right. of this contemplative thing about it, it does feel more like it's in reference to what came before right. than it has anything to do with trying to elicit a particular response. So I guess for me, horror comes with that that response that's there that they're looking for. Yeah. And without it, and maybe that's just because I'm a twisted guy, <laughs> I just kind of feel like... I get that. I, I was just kind of like in a warm blanket by the end of right. this. Not to say that you can't find comfort in horror and not to say that some horror isn't very uplifting. I mean, my some of my favorite stuff is like you say, like, you know, uh, Beetlejuice, you know, uh, right. a lot of early Tim Burton's very uplifting stuff. But still, I did feel that maybe I was just vibing too much with his actual point. Yeah. <laughs> so then for me, I was like, well, I didn't find any. I was, I was just zen. Right, and I think there's a very interesting evolution going on here in his work because mm -hmm. if you uh, look up the dates of the first film, No Place Like Home, No Place Like Home was made in 2008. Yeah, It still looks stunning, by the way. It still looks Great. really good. It still looks like it could have been made this year. Uh -huh. But in relation to the topics he addresses, there is very much an evolution going on in how he perceives the idea of iconography and how he perceives death because right. the first films are about like the first three films maybe even are about the idea of the rock band and really about the rock band yeah i got that feeling too and the idea of you 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 are you want to become a star you want to become an icon you want to progress in your dreams, you want to become... It's better to burn out than to fade away, like Neil Young said in uh, My My Hey, Hey Hey, or Hey Hey My My, I'm not sure. But it's like the whole rock star adagio of dying before you get old, crashing in a big ball of light, and wow, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm dead, but I'm an icon. So the first three shorts are kind of about death in that way. But... The fourth short is like a counterpoint. It's saying, no, you can accept that and you can accept growing old and you can accept everything and still become an icon or, and still become something more than that. But you can accept that without burning away because the, the character progresses to all these stages and he starts as the rocker like yo wankers he's saying and he's very punk rock and very dropped out of high school and very living that life you know and eventually we move on to a sort of maturing of that team in reruns and it's i i think it's 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 a piece that really throws the other three into a very different light yes and i think it's great I think it's it's great, but it's it's a counterpoint. The first three films are a point, and the fourth film is a counterpoint. Mm -hmm. It really felt for me that I like you pointed out with Holy Wankers and and his attitude that it's almost like this reflection on who he was before, and yeah. mainly the reflection on the fact that he never took the step to really reflect on that until he knew he was going to die. Right, because now he's taking the step to look back and go who who am I? Yeah. Who have I been? Some people go through this without dire circumstances. Some people don't. And he kind of needed that wake up call 
And I think that he just discovered he loves who he was. Yeah. He always enjoyed who he was. And who cares if he didn't have all of these things? And that's, that's, I find the most beautiful thing in this entire piece was, although this, this ending does feel it kind of comes out of nowhere compared to the other three pieces. They're right. they're all, the other three are chaos incarnate. They really right. are the rock and roll lifestyle. And then suddenly he just puts on the brakes. He shows how everybody, at least the feeling almost as if he felt that everybody else in the band had matured more quickly than he did. Right. And now that he's finally got there and he's matured, he sees what they've gone through. And it's kind of, that's kind of cool. It is cool when you hit that maturity and you just go, Hey kid, this is who you are. Right. Never going to change. Right. I I think that's that it it is a profound film. And I think it's, it it took me the longest to warm up to, because I really like the chaos of the, first three and i mm-hmm. am very familiar with the first three i saw all of those multiple times at festivals so reruns really took a wild turn because it's much more deliberately paced it has yeah, it very long stretches that are not music based it has ends kind of on a very low-key note compared to, compared to the other films so it kind of took me a while to warm up to it but the more i see it the more i think it's the best of the four it was my favorite of the four if we were if i was looking for horror straight up number two was my favorite yeah the first one just bothered the hell out of me because of just aesthetics it was just pure right. editing, too much. editing was way too much for me but the fourth one iconography wise just i love the image of these giant skeletons like their heads sticking out of the water but they're headless i love that so much i liked the final image of him uh playing the guitar on a stage with no head and the best part was he tells the band like hey yo stop playing we i don't know the song i don't want to do this anymore can we just not and then just don't they don't even acknowledge him they just start singing and keep playing and he just figures it out because art does this you just go with the flow and i love that even in death with no head he's just rocking on because you know the essence continues and all those versions looking back on him that was such a good image profound profound Mm -hmm. and one of the things i found very maybe depressing about these films is they have been shown in the cinemas here in Netherlands. I know he has a lot of fans at film festivals, but I know there are many people not aware of these works, never seen it. Like like I said, below 100 views on Letterboxd. Yeah. And the music, like the music of the band D-Records, there is, it, it, it is on Spotify. There is okay. the album, it's a long, long-ass album, but the, it is on Spotify, mm-hmm. but there are 30 monthly listeners. Like 30, 30 people. That's 30. it. That's it. Wow. It was released last year, the album. Okay. I didn't know it. I was a Rosto fan, but I didn't know it. It was it was like released without any fanfare. And it's a shame because it's the music is great, you know? It's all written by Rosto, but it's great. It's very prog rocky rocky. Mm-hmm. If you're into prog rock, you should check it out. But it's like 30 monthly listeners. And that's depressing to me. Yeah. I One thing I found, I I had a chuckle a little bit with watching the documentary because I was like, I don't think anybody really knows this stuff, but you kind of act like you are Pink Floyd doing your uh, memoirs. Yeah. 
Uh, and on one hand, I'm like, that is the most artsy fartsy Dutch person thing that I've ever seen. Right. Uh, on the other hand, I really appreciate the commitment and just indulgence to just go, but this is how I feel about my art. And right. I'm, I don't care if you've experienced it. I'm on the most artistic wild ride you, you could ever be on. Right. And I wanted to document it for me. Right. And that's all that matters here. And I really dig his work, you know. I, I, I'm a big fan, but it's criminally underwatched. Yeah. And the, the album itself is listened to even less. And kind of saddening, you know, kind of depressing. It's also really easy music to listen to. Because you said it's got that prog rock vibe, but it's also got like this kind of rockabilly, yeah. jazz kind of fusion there as well. That like, any mom could just sit back and you're like, that sounds really nice. Thank you. It's, it's really chilled out music. Yeah. It's super it's... chill. Um, but hey, you know, you're doing the good work. You're fighting the good fight. And hopefully right. through us talking about this more often, maybe we can help create some sort of resurgence. You you program things. Maybe if you ever you're working on some sort of program where they're doing shorts and stuff, you could be like, we should do a retrospective. You're right, right. Uh, when I was involved with Bud Film Festival, this wasn't out yet. But the year after, they showed it at Bud Film Festival. Nice. And it has been shown in cinemas in the Netherlands and in France and in Belgium, I think. But right. there should be someone in America or in England who is like, hmm, let, let's let's call the, the producers and show a retrospective. Right. Because seeing this in cinemas is intense. I'll, oh, I can only imagine. <laughs> I mean, I saw it on my TV. Right? You had problems with the first one, but, but imagine seeing the first one on a big screen. I don't want to. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. I, I, it's, it's a lot. Oh, the first one's so much. But actually, I know so many people who would just be like, yes. And they would just soak up all the just bombast and flashing lights. If you're a fan of Terry Gilliam, exactly. if you're a fan of Tim Burton, if you're a fan of the Quay Brothers or Jan Schwankmeier or any of those Uncanny Valley half animation, half live action directors, check this shit out, please. It's I, I think some of your listeners will really dig this. For sure. I do want to make that clear. Just because I say something's not agreeable to me, this is a, a lesson I want everybody to learn. That just means it's a personal taste of what I pick it up for my own enjoyment. Not necessarily, but what I pick it up because I want to watch something that is deeply interesting, superbly made. Yes, I would just be like, okay, I need to, if I need to scratch that itch, I would do it. Does that mean it won't be agreeable to you? Absolutely not. You have to check things out and make decisions for yourself in, in on that level. And so I just want to make that clear to everybody listening. You really should check this out because I can imagine, I know tons of people who are going to be like, this is rock and roll. This is, this is amazing. Right. This is the kind of emotions I've had my whole life. And somebody's finally put it on screen. You know, I, I can see it. I know those people and I know yeah. that you're out there. Please check it out. Uh, so remind us again, where can you find this? You can find them on Vimeo On Demand, okay. but you can also uh, connect the producers, uh, go to the website of the producers, um, which is very hard to pronounce because it's in French, but it's autour de minuit.com. Uh, so if you 
Google Rostow and Google, the producers, they have a website. You can buy the graphic novel even as a book. Very cool. You can buy the Tetralogy. You can buy his earlier shorts on DVD. He also has made a children's short, by the way, uh, which is kind <laughs> of, it's called Monster of Nyx. And it's Aww. it's it's a version of the story of Mind My Gap, but for children okay. with the voices of Tom Waits and Terry Gilliam. What the hell? Okay. And it's also criminally underwatched, even though it even has The Residents, the famous punk band. Wow. That's so international. Like The Residents, nobody knows who The Residents are, but they are in the cast. Rostow knew them. Right. And it's a children's film with The Residents, Tom Waits, and Terry Gilliam. It has like 100 locks on Letterboxd. It's like, why are people sleeping on this? Okay, so everybody out there, you definitely have to check that one out. I'm going to check that one out just because, like, there's no reason to now. It's very international. And how could you not like at least Tom Waits being involved in a project? Come on. Tom Waits plays a version of Virgil. Okay. Who is the protagonist of reruns, Mm -hmm. but as a monstrous devilish sparrow, like the bird, the sparrow. You want to see Tom Waits as a sparrow with tiny hands instead of claws? complaining about eggs it's you want that in your life to be fair i could totally be entertained for hours with tom waits complaining about eggs so right yeah (laughs) (laughs) awesome okay so are were there any other quick points that you wanted to make that you haven't made yet or do you think that uh, we've uh, tapped all of your notes i think we tapped all of my notes i think we we discussed basically everything that's on here awesome so, yeah, uh, I do want to mention um, that if you're living in the Netherlands, there is a film festival coming up in September and October, uh, the l- last week of September in Rotterdam and the first weekend of October in Amsterdam, which I am involved in. It's called Camera Japan. It's a festival all about Japanese films. And if you're living in the Netherlands, please come by. It's, it's going to be an amazing program. It's going to be fun. And if you speak Dutch, visit the website cine.nl and take a subscription uh, for Schokkend News magazine. But only if you speak Dutch. Otherwise, you <laughs> only have to look at beautiful pictures. It's a glossy. So, And it's not expensive. So maybe you should do it anyway, because those cover arts and the art they have in it are awesome. <laughs> Thank you, thank you, so, thank you. Yes, Hawkeye News does some pretty good stuff. And frankly, if you get the digital edition, you can use Google Translate. So please, by all means, <laughs> support some international people out there because, you know, worldwide, everybody's thinking about the same things and we all have different perspectives. So it's uh, for those people who want to know what it is, it's a genre-based magazine. So it's horror, science fiction, fantasy, cult, and anime. What more could you want? <laughs> Awesome. Yeah, those all sound wonderful. And we will definitely put all of that information in the show notes as well. So if you're listening in, you're like, oh, what was that that, that production house that I want to go? It, it's in the show notes. So make sure you go to one of the websites that you can find the information for this podcast on so you can go buy yourself this DVD and check it out. Great. Great. Well, then I will wrap things up up so this podcast is a part of the anatomy of a scream pod squad be sure to follow the anatomy of a scream podcast page on your preferred podcast platform to check out more introspective semi-academic and fun podcasts including the american beyond hosted by justin yandel and chris vander k the scream teams hosted by gory Corey and lena 
and much more. You can find more info at anatomyofascream.com. If you're interested in more of my musings on beauty and horror, or horror in general, you can follow me on Twitter at underscore shockaholic, and you can check out my website, which is shockaholic.org. So, dear listeners, what are your thoughts on The Wrecker's Tetralogy? You can find it online via Vimeo On Demand, as we have already mentioned, on DVD from the suppliers themselves. But I'd love to hear your thoughts if you do manage to check this out. So either on Twitter at beautyhorrorpod, via email at beautyofhorrorpod at gmail.com, or in our newly formed community space on Discord. Be sure to check the Twitter page for the link to the server. It's completely free to join, so we would love to see you there. Now, as I announced in last week's episode, the beauty of horror is taking advantage of the new tier membership features on Coffee. Ko-Fi, however you want to pronounce that. This is a service that is much like Patreon, and but every cent goes directly to the channel instead of a high percentage going to the middleman. This show will stay completely free for all listeners. What you get through all membership tiers is access to an additional monthly podcast entitled The Good, The Agreeable, and The Beautiful, which very apt for today's discussion, in which I will review a horror film with a ranking system based on those three points from Immanuel Kant's core judgments of taste, good, agreeable, and beautiful. You will also receive tier-exclusive roles on Discord, a private section to talk with fellow backers, monthly AMAs, the ability to choose which film I will review, and way more, depending on the tier level you choose. So please be sure to check out Ko-Fi, so ko-fi.com slash beautyhorrorpod for full details on the various options. I'm super excited to offer this membership subscription, and I cannot wait to get the content out to those who are eager to have it. Thank you again, Teo, for sitting down and broadening my horizons when it comes to the types of discussions we can have on this podcast, but also the types of projects that are out there in the world. It's been lovely uh, chatting with you. So where can everybody find you and your regular work? Uh, you can find my uh, Twitter at Theo and you can find uh, my work in Schokkend News Magazine and Seen It All NL. Excellent. Be sure to check that out, especially if you speak Dutch. And if you don't, as I said, Google Translate is your <laughs> And thank you, dear listener, for joining us and talking about the beauty that works within the world. Goodbye. Squad.